My name is Charles Stang, and I'm the director of the Center for the Study of World Religions here at Harvard Divinity School. Welcome to this evening's event, the very last but certainly not least of our whole year's programming, a panel discussion of my colleague, Professor Todney Thomas's new book, Kingcraft, Kingcraft, The Making of Black Evangelical Sociality from Duke University Press. I'll say more about Professor Thomas and this book in just a moment, but first uh, permit me a word about this series. It was established by my predecessor, Frank Clooney, as an opportunity for the Divinity School community to gather not only to celebrate faculty publications, but more importantly, to learn from them by engaging with them, both appreciatively and critically. And to that end, we're grateful for our two respondents whose comments will kick off what I'm sure will be a very spirited conversation. We have an hour and a half together, so I will keep my remarks brief so that there'll be plenty of time for questions. Now, a brief word about the book, its author, and our two respondents. Professor Todney Thomas is a sociocultural anthropologist and assistant professor of African-American religions here at Harvard Divinity School. She is the co-editor of New Directions in Spiritual Kinship, Sacred Ties Across the Abrahamic Religions. We're here this evening, of course, to engage with her latest book, just released from Duke University Press, Kincraft, The Making of Black Evangelical Sociality. In this book, Professor Thomas explores the internal dynamics of community life among black evangelicals who are often overshadowed by white evangelicals and the common equation of the black church with an Afro-Protestant mainline. Drawing on fieldwork in an Afro-Caribbean and African-American church association in Atlanta, Thomas locates Black evangelicals at the center of their own religious story, presenting their determined spiritual relatedness as a form of insurgency. She outlines how church members co-create themselves as spiritual kin through what she calls kincraft, the construction of one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Kincraft, which Thomas traced back to the diasporic histories and migration experiences of church members, reflects Black evangelicals' understanding of Christian family connection as transcending racial, ethnic, and denominational boundaries in ways that go beyond the patriarchal nuclear family. And now it is my pleasure and privilege to introduce this evening's two respondents, Professors Judith Castleberry and Sung Chan Ra. Professor Castleberry is Associate Professor of Africana Studies at Bowdoin College, where she teaches courses on African-American women's religious lives, music and spirituality in popular culture, music and social movements, and issues in Black intellectual thought. Her most recent book is The Labor of Faith, which employs feminist labor theories to examine the spiritual, material, social, and organizational women work of women in a New York-based Pentecostal denomination. Professor Sung Chan Ra is a professor of church growth and evangelism at North Park University in Chicago and the author of Many Colors, Cultural Intelligence for a Changing World. Thank you once again, both of you, for joining us and for helping us all enter into and appreciate Professor Thomas's new book. So here's how the evening will unfold. Professor Thomas, uh, Thomas will say a few words about her book and then We'll give the floor to Professors Castleberry and Ra, who will offer their own remarks. We'll then invite Professor Thomas to respond, and then that will lead naturally into a conversation among all three. 
We'll aim uh, at the top of the hour, so 6 p.m., we'll aim to open it up to discussion with your questions and comments. So at that time, I will reappear and uh, begin reading questions from that Q&A. So thank you again for joining us. Without further ado, Professor Thomas, the floor is yours. Thank you. Um, good afternoon to everyone. Um, I hope everybody's hanging on and um, we're April strong and not April worn out. Um, my thanks go to uh, Charles Stang, um, the director of the CSWR for the invitation to conduct this book talk, um, as well as to uh, Judith Castleberry and Sung Chan Ra, um, who are both scholars that um, if you don't know, I hope you get to know. Um, uh, their ideas and the body of their work have also been really important for me in the development of this work. Uh, and so I'm very excited um, and really honored uh, to be in conversation with them um, this afternoon. Thank you for making time uh, to discuss this project with me, especially during a busy season. And uh, a warning or uh, an alert, um, I, I have a very um, curious and free roaming nine-year-old who may uh, interject himself in our conversation at any time. So uh, cameos are a possibility. So uh, my presentation is very brief, more interested in, in hearing from our, our panelists and being in conversation with them and with you. Um, but briefly, uh, my book, Kincraft, The Making of Black Evangelical Sociality, comes out of Oh, about 13 years of ethnographic engagement and intellectual uh, deliberation. When describing what it means to be a part of a Christian community, Sister Clara Sutton, a 62-year-old Afro-Trinidadian nurse and evangelical church member concluded that Christians embodiment of the Holy Spirit fostered a special kinship between Christians. According to Sutton, it's a unique relationship, really, that you meet people in another country from another place and you have this one common bond. And they don't really have to know you or know anything about you, but yet the Holy Spirit has made you all kin and you know it. And that's unique, really. It doesn't have to take long to form a bond with other Christians at all. It was conversations like the one that I had with Sister Sutton and other members uh, at the, at the uh, Dixon Bible Chapel and Corinthian Bible Chapel communities in Metro Atlanta that alerted me to their very relational views of Christian identity and community. Informed by my interviews with these congregants, my participation in their institutional and lived religious worlds, uh, my review of church archival records and oral histories, I argue that CBC and DBC intellectual evangelicals, who are also intellectuals, make themselves into kin through spiritual definitions and enactments of family. In particular, um, I observed that they manifested this spiritual kinship through discourse and practices of relatedness that they produced as brothers and sisters in Christ, spiritual mothers, spiritual fathers, spiritual children, and prayer partners. I use the term kincraft. Uh, to denote the ways in which these spiritual relationships derive from religious and diasporic histories, orientations, and practices. Um, and in particular, um, I note that kincraft also emerges from their lived material conditions of racialization, spatial mobility, and social mobility. However, the study of Black evangelical sociality is not just a case study in utility. 
It also reveals a sense of pride that comes from participating in a community. Spiritual ties at times are a joy to discuss. Eyes light up with pleasure when discussing their beauty. I noticed this in an interview with Brother Bernard Stewart, an Afro-Trinidadian member of DBC who later became my spiritual father. And last week he chided me for not keeping in better touch. And during an interview, he expressed his opinion that Christians inherited church family after being bought by the blood of Christ. Yet, Stuart drew my attention to another dimension of relatedness that stemmed from a closeness. And he talked about, when I talk to a, a sister or brother, I can feel a part of myself wrapping around them. Um, it was this shared idea of personhood that also demonstrated to me that there was a binding that was not just derivative of church membership, but that ignited the joys of speaking of a we and an us. I interposed kincraft to address two major problems that I think inhibit um, understanding the nuances and complexities of Black evangelical community life in the United States. The first is a problem of religio-racial illegibility, right? Um, we have a kind of popular racial cartography of Christianity in the US in which we think about mainstream evangelicalism as a predominantly white uh, uh, Christian movement, right? Um, and as a result of that, minoritized perspectives are often lost or assumed to be assimilative. At the same time, when we talk about Black church perspectives, um, we tend to think of an Afro-Protestant mainline, right, that's associated with the traditional African-American denominations um, or uh, long-storied African-American engagements with some of the uh, very important uh, Protestant denominations in our landscape. Um, these popular mappings, while having some groundings in historical patterns and demography, miss the complex positioning of evangelicals who have their own ecclesiologies, histories, theologies, and constructs of community and kinship in the U.S. social landscape. I also interject uh, kincraft as a, a response to uh, an understanding of U.S. neo-evangelicalism as solely or only uh, a heteronormative family project. Well, certainly heteronormative ideas and ideals are dominant within the Black evangelical communities uh, in which I uh, participated, worshiped, learned, studied the Bible, prayed. Um, but there's another valence of kinship at play that uh, church members are very active in voicing, um, very active in participating and, and devoting their time and labor to, that these spiritual valences of kinship are actually very central to uh, the functioning and operation of heteronormative family life, that they provide alternative spaces where Black evangelicals can voice what I call confessional intimacies, critiques or reflexivities of heteronormative discourse, um, and also places of deep and abiding spiritual communion, intimacy, laughter, play, food sharing, kitchen table talk, and gossip. And so one of the abiding lessons of kincraft is thinking about how people construct kinship beyond what I call, you know, colloquially in my own mind, kin closures, right? The idea of a nuclear bounded uh, definition of nuclear kinship to broader inter-household, expansive and even transcendent and universal definitions of kinship that people enact and believe in and invest in at the same time. So that's my uh, sort of general overview. I'm happy to answer um, more questions in Q&A, um, but I'd like to pass the mic, if I could, uh, to Dr. Judith Castleberry.
Thank you, Tommy. And I just thank you to uh, Charles and to uh, Ariel and the Center for the Study of World Religions. And thank you to you, Todney, for um, inviting me to participate in this conversation and, and just to spend time with your wonderful new book. Um, as I, I was reading it and I was thinking, um, Ken is a verb, right? But, but you had to actually come up with the word kin craft so that people would understand that kin is a verb. And I always say love is a verb, right? And so as I'm reading your text, I'm saying, well, kin is a verb, family is a verb, love is a verb. So overall, how I have um, experienced your text is uh, what has been circulating in my mind is love and legibility. That's where I feel that this text is sitting. And uh, from 10,000 feet up, uh, we can think about the discipline of anthropology, as both of us are anthropologists, and specifically, specifically in anthropology, the study of religion. And anthropology in its formation as a discipline had no love for the objects of study. And to the contrary, particular ideas about objectivity, uh, places love beyond the bounds of consideration. But what if love is a theoretical and methodological component? What does that look like? It looks like moving into spaces without hubris. It looks like moving through spaces without knowing and being okay with that. And what does, what does love as a theoretical and methodological component yield? Well, it yields counterintuitive findings. It yields both and analysis. It yields seeming contradictions and it yields beautifully layered complexity, which is exactly where you are sitting with this text. And, and, and you know, for me, love and legibility is something that I've been like working with and through uh, both in my work on Pentecostal women, apostolic Pentecostal women in New York, and then the things I'm working on now with Grace Jones, like love and legibility is kind of where I am sitting with this work. And, and so as I'm reading Kincraft, there it is again, like love and legibility. Who are these Black evangelicals? And, and this much of this has already been laid out, but just this, this, um, sitting, at this sitting in this place that in, in many ways has invisibilized them, and uh, that place of, of evangelical, which is understood as white and a particularly political conservative, that, that kind of mapping, and then between studies of, of black religiosity that in, in America have been really framed around, you know, uh, Christianity and particularly Afro, you know, the black church, right? And, and this made me think about uh, the title of um, that canonical black feminist text edited by Ashaka um, Hull, Patricia Bell Scott and Barbara Smith titled, All the Women Are White, All the Men Are Blacks, But Some of Us Are Brave. And so this is another place where I feel like, so then, you know, how do we think about who are these black evangelicals with a genealogy that runs through England, Caribbean, Scotland, Canada, Detroit, Georgia. They were not yet legible because no one cared to ask the questions and enter Professor Todney Thomas. So I just wanted to say a couple of other things about um, the text. When I was learning about um, Michael Flowers, who's the, the founder of the CBC and, and DBC, I began thinking about Julia Foote, the 19th century itinerant preacher. 
and how, and it made me think about how she created uh, and experienced her godly family during that time. And both uh, for her and for Flowers, both biblical literacy was the place to begin. And so she, in her text, she says, I believe that if I were educated, God could make me understand what I needed. For in spite of what others said, it would come to me now and then that I needed something more than what I had. But that was something, but that was, but what that something was, I could not tell. And so this idea of you have to get in the word, like that's the place that you have to start. And then the the quote from, um, flowers to you before you start Bible study. I love that quote. He goes, let's see what happens when we get in the word and allow the word to get into us. And I also just as an aside, your section where you're talking about communion and and relating ingesting communion and ingesting the text. I thought that that was really um, powerful and really um, it, it was both, it was, it was, I, it was a visual for me, it was a visual um, it, it conjured up kind of this visualization of, of, of ingesting this text. And then the other thing I was thinking about in terms of like uh, foot and, fl- and flowers was they both were challenging other black Christians. And so foot was her thing was like, you know, if you're not sanctified, then you, you, you need to get right. Right. And, and with flowers, and, and I think this is really interesting because with flowers it, moving in, in 55 from Detroit to the South in the, in the civil, during the civil rights movement. Right. And he's, his focus is to missionize people who are in the black church, specifically Afro-Baptists, because as he says, they play church and they were quote, given over to emotionalism without any content, unquote. So he's basing his critique on real theological differences and on racist stereotypes of Southern black religiosity. And so at the same time, and at the same time he's focused on black Christians, he's criticizing this ethno-racial congregationalism and envisioning this interracial, um, interracial, inter-ethnic Bible believing community. And so even though this, his vision isn't realized in the churches he founds because those are African-American and Afro-Caribbean, but he, but his his revivals and evangelizing is where we can see his inter his his interracial agenda, if you want to put it that way, right? But it's also so fascinating to me that he he notes that he didn't really get a lot of black preachers to come to his revivals because his message was Jesus focused and. And it was at a time when many of these churches were, it was in the midst of the civil rights movement. So he didn't want to have this place of politics. He didn't want politics to be the center of what he's doing. He was about Jesus. And so then again, you have this, this disconnect from what is thought about as the, the place of black religiosity in this particular moment. And, but it's also really interesting to me that he, even though he believed that um, black ministers should focus on this Jesus approach. At the same time, I, he notes that as black people and as quote oppressed people, we are able to identify with Jesus. And I said, yes, as Gwendolyn Brooks tells us, the loveliest Lynchy was our Lord. 
right? This is black. This is how black people have been able, and and, and that Flowers understands this really clearly from the perspective of being racialized and living in a racialized society at the same time that he's pushing back against it. So it makes me think about um, like this, this, I don't want to call it a conundrum because this is what's happening, but this, this interesting uh, situation where you have, and this is for, for foot as well, but in a different context, but you have these um, black, re black religionists thinking about or evangelizing to other black people against ethno-racial congregations in a racialized world, right? And so it just, it, it made me wonder and to think about like, well, they both chose to go to black people first. And so it, could this be, could one argue that both foot and flowers love for the divinity in black people, which is denied by society, is that what catalyzes their, their evangelizing and their kincraft specifically to other black people? I was thinking, oh, black souls matter, right? Like, like how people say, oh, black lives matter. Well, yeah, you know, but we're saying that because, right? And, and so I was wondering like, is that kind of how they're moving into these black communities wanting to have, wanting to promote interracial and, and godly families. Um, this also makes me think about um, Charles Long's definition of religion, where he says it's orientation and orientation in the ultimate sense, that is how one comes to terms with the ultimate significance of one's place in the world. And what I really appreciate about your text is that you show us their place. And what you also show is that this place is very dynamic. It's very fluid. And so what you're locating for us is a shifting place. That is that there's no reason for us to expect that it's going to stay the same, but where we see it sit right now. Um, and I'll just reiterate what you said before, but just so people really understand this sociality that's realized at the intersection of three different ways of, of understanding kinship and being kin. And that's the Aphrodisiac outlines um, about sacred ancestry and communion and witness. The second is these adaptive practices within diasporic, but particularly important in migratory contexts, which I think is a really important point that you make uh, to expand how we think about the place of diaspora, but to also think about migratory context. And then how that attends, uh, how the, those practices attend to the effects of racialization. And then the third being the United Christian relatedness to this um, theology of Plymouth Brethren in, in this particular case. So um, I'm, uh, the other point that I want to make that I think is really important um, about what you're doing is look, what is family and what is the relationship between family and kin? And your work building off of uh, kinship scholars um, who are arguing uh, her questioning this usefulness of the heteronormative biological family as an analytical union and moving what you're doing and they are doing as well, but you're building on this is moving ahead instead to the on the ground praxis of social sociality, like what are people doing? And it's so fascinating that by privileging the biogenetic family, older models of kinship devise this category, fictive kin, 
And it's an analytical framework that in its very construction devalued the salient motivations and characteristics of what they're trying to name. And so, um, so as you say, fictive, uh, that fictive assumes biogenetic descent is the legitimate way to define family. And what your text shows us really clearly is that does not work. Because we know since black folks arrived in the US, the social and intimate networks that we've produced and reproduced refute these notions of, of bounded family and kin um, networks. So um, I, uh, I would argue that you're trying to retire the term fictive and that you're ready to strike it from the, from the vocabulary. Um, I'm, I have some other things, but I'll just hold those um, for conversation. But I just want to say thank you very much for this text. And I really um, appreciate being able to engage with it or you know, read through it and uh, digest it. And, and I'm really looking forward to a conversation. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Thomas and Dr. Castleberry for uh, wonderful remarks. Uh, I'm very thankful for the invitation. Uh, greatly honored to be able to participate in this, uh, in this panel. Uh, this is a very significant work. So I'm, I'm so excited about the, uh, what it presents on so many different levels. Um, I think, Dr. Ted, uh, Dr. Thomas, you already know that my doctoral dissertation was on the topic of Black evangelicalism or African American evangelicals, uh, but it was taken more from a historical angle to try to trace the history and the development of Black evangelicalism from the 1960s forward. Uh, so I always appreciate multiple perspectives and different disciplines with different eyes kind of trained to see different aspects of the story. Uh, so while my work was more historical, your anthropological and ethnography is extraordinarily helpful. Um, and of course it contributes to the broader study of the topic of American religions, particularly African-American religion. Um, I'm just a personal strong conviction that uh, we need more of these kind of interdisciplinary studies to get a more robust picture of religious life in America. And this is clearly one of those contributions. Um, this contribution to, and I'm using this term intentionally recognizing its limited um, uh, uh, impact, which is Black church studies. Now there's, you know, it's it's too limited to use that phrase because there's so much more than just Black church studies. Uh, but what your contribution does is it, it demonstrates that uh, the Black church and the Black church experience is not monolithic. Uh, as you've kind of laid out, uh, it's not uh, limited to a particular brand of African-American church or Christian life or religious life, uh, but there's a greater depth substance and nuance to this broader topic of the African-American religious experience. So you are in many ways um, taking uh, Dr. Evans, Curtis Evans's work of the burden of black religion and just kind of maybe um, uh, releasing that pressure a little bit, releasing that burden a little bit to say, no, there's a lot more going on than, than some of the more simplistic answers that we've given to that. Uh, and I'll pick up on this theme a little bit later because I think it is such an important and significant contribution. Uh, but I thought I'll begin my response with kind of looking at, looking at the larger framework of American or US evangelicalism. Um, and this text is such a needed corrective to that standardized definition that we have, as has already been mentioned, evangelical uh, has been so tied into a particular social political framework, a sociology that is clearly uh, reflective of white middle-class suburban Republican uh, um, Americans. Um, and what you're doing is, is stretching us to think about evangelicalism 
through this kind of different lens. So when we think of the term evangelical, especially in the U.S. context, and um, in one of my earlier works, I distinguish between the small e evangelicalism and big e evangelicalism. Small e evangelicalism is really the larger movement of Protestant uh, conservative theological movements that's been around for centuries and centuries. But what you're uh, speaking about in context is the kind of the organized network and systems and structures, the the kind of the lived experiences of evangelicalism, uh, particularly kind of post-World War II, with, especially with the advent of the NAE, the National Association of Evangelicals. Um, so evangelicalism in the U.S. has been uh, initially defined in more theological ecclesial terms. And we've talked about it using theological markers like Bebbington's quadrilateral, uh, Mark Nolan, George Marsden's work around the Puritan reform framework. Uh, we've kind of talked about it's the high view of scripture, high view of Christology, certain socio soteriological categories. Um, and so that's created some boundaries, theological ecclesial boundaries around evangelicalism that um, has assumed it includes non-white evangelicals. It's assumed that, uh, in fact, one of the easiest excuses that I've heard to not study black evangelicalism or African-American evangelicalism is to say the black church has an evangelical theology. So we don't need to go beyond that because we already know that there's kind of an evangelical, and that's that's just too simplistic of a statement to make, or and oftentimes not an accurate statement to make. Um, but there have been these theological markers, whether it is kind of Reformed theology, Tolip, uh, the fundamentals, five fundamentals, Bevington's quadrilateral. So those are interesting categories to debate and talk about, and there's still some conversation going about the theological ecclesial boundaries of evangelicalism. Um, but the 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 situation, though, is that it moved beyond these theological categories to these sociological categories. Now, um, I, I do want to point out that these theological ecclesial categories that you're kind of speaking to, uh, the fact that they exist is also problematic because these categories are so rooted in Western European uh, culture, uh, framework, worldview, etc. Uh, so it's a very truth-possessed, it's very bounded set, uh, it's kind of, again, a, a clear demarcation of you're an insider, an outsider, usually based upon cognitive acquiescence to these set of propositions. Um, and so when you have these kind of theological boundaries, they also have a sociological implication to them as well, because these theological ecclesial boundaries are um, actually creating some of these boundaries because they are rooted in this Western captivity or Western cultural paradigms. Um, so there's, there's already an implicit bias when we talk about evangelicalism, even if we're using theological ecclesial categories. But clearly, as, as you point out, and as others have pointed out, that it shifted to a much more sociological understanding, uh, white, middle class, suburban, Republican. Uh, this is uh, amplified or maybe uh, kind of solidified with the emergence of neo-evangelicalism, as you point out, again, post-World War II, NAE, and the network of evangelicals that began to form uh, usually rooted in the seminaries they go to, the Christian colleges, uh, the, the parachurch organizations, et cetera, the, some of the denominations, they kind of create this social network for evangelicals. And because it's a social network and social connectiveness, it tends to limit to white evangelicals and not to other people groups. Um, and what's interesting is that that is kinship. That is this kind of kinship idea idea of 
we're forming relational dynamics that define us more than some of our theological moorings. So uh, what you're defining in the lived theology of the Black evangelical experience was, is also actually the lived theology of the white evangelical experience. But it's never identified as such because it's seen as, oh no, we're theologically bounded, we're ecclesially connected, you know, we're doing this for the sake of the gospel, you know, for kingdom, all the kind of language that comes with that without recognizing what you're describing is also happening in the white evangelical community as well. These kinship groups and these dynamics that occur. And of course, we can now recognize, and especially in the last four or five years, how much it is much more now a political designation. Uh, the theology doesn't really count anymore as to whether you're an evangelical or not. Uh, even the sociology is, is changed. It's not middle-class suburban. It's kind of just white Republican period. And that's kind of the end of that story. So the label of evangelical has shifted dramatically, uh, but it has still stayed in that realm of white evangelicalism. Uh, and that's where it's so exciting to encounter this work because um, you're not, I don't think you're redefining evangelicalism. If you go back to kind of the root definition of it, if you go back to Bemington, if you go back to Noel Marsden, uh, you're, you're pointing out that the theological roots and categories are similar in many ways, right? It's talking about a high view of scripture that coming from the brethren, uh, the Plymouth brethren, as well as the black brethren that emerged later on, uh, coming from NBEA, which is, you know, kind of another offshoot of the NAE, but with similar theological framing and it, the same networks. Um, and this is kind of my work with uh, evangelicalism, black evangelicalism, is how much black evangelicalism made an effort. These are self-identified, and this is kind of what you're pointing to as well. Self-identified, uh, these would be kind of colleagues and peers of flowers. Uh, the Bill Pinnells, the Tom Skinners, the Bill and Ruth Bentleys. Uh, as they kind of form this organization, the National Black Evangelical Association, uh, in many ways, um, it's doing what the white evangelicals were doing without, you know, kind of understanding how privileged of a position it was taking, right? So these white evangelicals would form these parachurch organizations, these uh, Christian colleges, uh, that is kind of the inroads into evangelical power. Uh, and it is usually denied to black evangelicals, even though the black evangelicals that I've identified have the laminated evangelical card in many ways. They have the credentials. They went to Wheaton College. They went to Moody. They went to uh, Trinity and Fuller. Uh, they worked for Young Life. They worked for uh, uh, Billy Graham Evangelical Association. Uh, they have all the markers of the sociological connection and network and kinship uh, with the uh, white evangelical community. And yet we know in the historical accounts that they were pretty, uh, pretty noticeably left out uh, in the rise of evangelicalism in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. These are not names that you associate with the evangelical movement as much. Skinner, you hear his name every once in a while. John Perkins, you hear his name every once in a while. But the Pennells and the Bentleys and the Clarence Hilliards and you know these significant um, uh, Columbus Sally, these kind of significant individuals who were part of the black evangelical movement uh, even though the kinship family experience was there, they were not included in a lot of the uh, the movements, um, especially in the in the places of power. Uh, and so that that again, where the the, the relational kinship dynamic, uh, you're calling that out. Uh, and you know, to use you know, I'm 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 an, I'm an old time preacher. 
Uh, I was a pastor for, for 17 years, so I still have a little bit of that preacher zeal in me, but the preacher zeal in me would come out. I would say this is like the, the ultimate in hypocrisy uh, to kind of play at the games of kinship, relationship, you know, evangelicalism is one big family. We're all connected to each other. We all love each other. We all care for each other. We all look out for each other, but that doesn't cross the racial boundaries. And so this idea of kinship, and again, the use of the word family, and I really appreciate the way you are deconstructing the way they use the family in a very specific heteropatriarchal, heteronormative, nuclear family. And that's where the family values come out of. So it is, again, a very sociologically, culturally driven rather than actually even maybe even theologically or biblically driven. Uh, so, you know, your reference to the Moynihan report that kind of identifies uh, pathology uh, in the other communities. And then this is the normal community uh, without recognizing there are extraordinary kinship relationships in these communities that you have created otherness for, and that could actually be indicative and of the kinship in the larger Christian community as well. So, um, and so you see some of the dysfunctional expressions of it, decrying the absence of the black male in the black community, decrying the female centric nature of the black church. Uh, all of these, uh, again, the, the fiery preacher me says that's out that smacks of hypocrisy because you kind of set up the definition of family in one way that, you know, certain groups, uh, it doesn't make sense to use those measurements. And so I really appreciate what this book does, which is to, and, and others as well, you're kind of, you know, kind of uh, tapping into that larger narrative of there are different ways to define what family kinship looks like. And let's look at the lived experience of these communities. And that's, again, one of the strengths of this book. This is, is an anthropological ethnography. Uh, you're not imposing this is what you should have been. You are saying from out of this community comes this incredible story and narrative that informs vibrant religious life. So um, this uh, is, is a highly instructive book on what I think uh, we should be doing more of in our understanding of religious life in America. Not just kind of looking at it from the theological ecclesial angle, which is helpful, but really to say, what is the lived experience? And out of that lived experience, outcome, the, the outcomes that we've seen and the learnings that we can have. Uh, and, and my final um, uh, observation on this is I would, um, I really appreciated that you took a Caribbean African-American church as one of your uh, models, because that's also kind of a neglected community. So um, I guess I'm, I'm, a, I'm a preacher for many years back, but I was a pastor in Cambridge for many years. So some of my best friends in Cambridge were part of uh, the United Pentecostal Council of the Assemblies of God, which was actually Bill and Ruth Bentley's denominations, they were key figures in the NBEA. Uh, and so uh, Abundant Life Church, Pentecostal Tabernacle, First Holiness, they're all like within blocks of each other in Cambridge, but it would be like Bishop Green, Bishop Ward, uh, Pastor Lorraine Thornhill. Uh, and uh, they, all three of them are second, maybe even third generation pastors. They inherited the church from their parents and their parents were first generation immigrants, Barbadian, Bahamian from the Caribbean. And that's why they were kind of part of this black evangelical network because the immigrant experience was really informing their black church experience as well. It's kind of, that's where, you know, it's, it's, it's not this simplistic understanding. It's a much broader understanding because of their immigrant experience. So I know from my personal experience working with Abundant Life and 
Larry in Virginia and and Bishop uh, Brian and um, Brian Green and Lorraine Thornhill, um, that there was a connection there because of, because as an immigrant myself who came out of the immigrant church and that sense of kinship that you're describing, I could say I remember those experiences growing up in a Korean immigrant church. There were there were parallels there. There were you know the sense of isolation from larger American society, and then the sense of connection that you come. It's almost like I don't want to use the word natural, but it it just happened re relatively quickly. The the sense of connection and community kinship, um, and it was it, it was almost like it didn't, it wasn't even quite learned behavior. It was it was kind of out of a need for one because of the larger uh, uh, contextual issues, but there was a an, a, a a bonding that occurred within the kin community, a kinship that occurred. Uh, because of our common experience as immigrants. And I do feel like there's kind of a parallel there, there between the immigrant communities now, whether it's Spanish-speaking congregation, Korean immigrant churches, uh, Laotian churches, as well as especially the Caribbean, uh, Afro-Caribbean churches that you're describing. So once again, thank you for this incredible work, extraordinary, insightful, and, um, and, um, and, and the larger conversation that this creates around American religious studies. Thank you, Dr. Ra, for your feedback and for these really great sort of framing um, devices. Um, so we're at a point now we have until, um, I guess, six uh, to be in conversation and then we can we can take Q&A from the audience. And I hope the audience won't waste the opportunity to ask to ask the two of you questions as well. And by the way, Judith, I have a student, hopefully my student Tom is on the line, but he is a cool JC pastor and is the biggest fan of your work. And that's great. Yes. <laughs> I've been telling him he should email you, but hopefully he'll be convinced after today. Hello, Tom. Uh, <laughs> so, um, you know, there, there is a, a couple of questions um, that uh, you brought up. And um, one of them is, is, you know, I don't know if I have an answer. It's why do you think T. Michael Flowers went to Black people first with evangelizing, you know, and um, in the midst of this, it's sort of situated between these two negative critiques of like uh, a white evangelical religion that refuses to really properly missionize as it's called to do, mm -hmm. and uh, a Black church Christianity that he sees as being, you know, more performative than biblical, right? Um, and I think it's it's a mixture of solidarity. Um, and, and paternalism, right? Mm -hmm. I think it's a mixture of solidarity and paternalism. I think it's also important for scholars of black religion to know that those things exist. You know, black church sounds, it sounds like we're all one happy family. It's almost like white people got Christendom and black people got the church, mm -hmm. right? And so we hear church and church is almost a kin concept itself, right? As, as we use it, you know, there, there's this idea, it's, it's an entity, it's singular, you know? Um, and so it's really, uh, T. Michael Flowers uh, is Afro-Bahamian. His wife is African-American. Um, and so, um, and interestingly, her family had moved from Georgia to Detroit to escape racism. And he marries his wife and moves back to Georgia. And her family has some very interesting ideas. But I, I, I like to believe that his position within an African-American extended family um, would have, and I didn't talk about this in the book as much, but would have created context of familiarity um, uh, with him, right? A sense of, of, of racial solidarity, 
Um, and this is before we have really the kind of ethnic identity politics that we see happening after the Hart Seller Immigration Act. This is this is still the U.S. is still segregated, right? And so black men a thing. Like black was just black. Like you might they might be like you're funny talking black, but you're you know that we didn't have the the ethnic identity distinctions that we tend to have and what we tend to see in the same way. It's not that they didn't exist, but they weren't necessarily recognized by the society writ large, right? Like we have Caribbean American Heritage Month. That's a thing in the month of May, right? This is before then. And I also think it's a paternalism. Um, uh, you know, he also was mentored by another set of Afro-Bahamian evangelists, the Nottage Brothers, um, who are, you know, and I've been at, I remember I said AAR and I met a scholar on a panel who's like, oh, so-and-so Nottage is like my great uncle or something like that. Like, so I've met some of the Nottage descendants and I've been like, I hope you like the book, you know? Um, so, you know, there's these three brothers who were also really instrumental in, in, and also brethren. Um, they were in Detroit, I think Philadelphia, another city. Um, and so there's this idea, well, black people are really neglected in this country, right? Um, and so there's this interesting kind of Caribbean, you know, one, one African-American church member said it was very British, almost imperial, right? The way they saw African-Americans, right? The affective uh, demoralization of African-American Christianity. Um, and so, and I also, but I, I, I try really hard to show that some of these orientations come from more than one source, right? If you're a missionary, um, you know, Tom Bodewin says you tend to have an evolutionary view of the culture you're trying to change. You don't, you don't missionize peers, right? If you think someone has the right God, you don't missionize peers, right? And so it's also about his position as the evangelist, his, 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 I think his, his Caribbean ancestry, his, his family network, right? It's, it's all of these things that I think shaped why he went to black people. It's, it's white neglect, right? Right. Spiritual neglect, right? Abrogation of, of evangelical missiological duty. I think it's all of those things. Um, you know, and, and the, what is family and the retirement of kinship? Yes. My grad advisor is actually feminist anthropologist of kinship. I came, I did kinship before I did religion, right? Um, and, and added religion later in grad school. I never took a religious studies class in graduate school. I had to learn a lot along the way. Um, there's even a, a, a piece that uh, sociologist writes where she analyzes the social scientific use of kinship. And she finds that social scientists use fictive kinship to talk about black and brown communities. Um, and they use affinity networks when talking about white communities and then use chosen kinship. And so the use of fictive kinship on the part of social scientists is racialized, right? And she thinks about the sort of semiotic and discursive implications of talking about something as fictive, right? Something as not real when people are already dealing with having their family networks pathologized. So I'm 100% in agreement on retiring that. Um, Professor Ra, I don't know if there were questions. I just, yes, I, I feel like I, yes, I agree. Um, you know, I think that uh, one of the, the interesting things about the, about black evangelicals in the, in the US and like, just, we have a lot more work to do, right? Uh, of really talking about um, black evangelicals and not black evangelicals who create racial, racial reconciliation that's somehow processed by a white majority, but black evangelicals as starting religious movements in and of their own right that continue to operate institutions and 
um, their affiliation with sort of predominantly white parachurch organizations and really understanding whiteness as institutional and discursive hegemony, right? That, that, that we are in a stage in which we were not just saying that, that we're disrupting the, the whiteness evangelicalism equation, but we're thinking about that, how that shaped our historiography and who's been left out. Um, and so um, I know there's a lot of work and it's a really important pressing work because we have a lot of elders who are getting older and we want to make sure we capture those stories as well. Um, and so um, I'm also in agreement that, you know, and there's some, there are some, uh, a couple of people who are part of these organizations who are well known, but I don't use their names because of <laughs> confidentiality, but there's a, a person who's pretty high up in InterVarsity who's a member of the church. So although I don't talk a lot about it, there are some really important bridges um, uh, between this community and some of those mainstream well-known um, uh, sort of storied parachurch organizations and, and things of that nature as well. Um, so um, I would I would also very much, very much agree. May I pose a question? Please. Another question? So um, I have a bunch of questions, but I'll, okay, I'll start with a small question. I was thinking about scale in your text and um, and I was when and the one one um, uh, uh, member of the church talks about how they like small churches, and so much of what you talk about are these small intimate gatherings. And I'm wondering, um, are small churches indispensable to the process as you understood it mm -hmm. in in terms of how it happens here? Is that is that something that's really necessary, or or is it something that that they themselves have? Think about replicating in a, to a larger scale, or is this is this kind of part and parcel of the process of kidney? I think it's I think it's something that is is pretty self conscious. Um, I think that in some ways they would distinguish what they were doing uh, from like megachurch Christianity. Like they located their place there within a kind of religious marketplace, and of course Atlanta, you know, is is the home of quite a few like predominantly black you know, mega churches, right? So there's those mega church options. There, there are white evangelical mega churches. So someone talked about going to Charles Stanley's church and being constantly Jamaican couple refer to the international service in Spanish. And they're like, we're English speakers, you know? So, you know, people also talked about when they first touched down in, in Atlanta before, some people migrated and were part of this intergenerational brethren networks. And there are other people who found their way into the community. Um, so they, they contrast themselves with like a megachurch Christianity. Um, but also I think that brethren ecclesiology is really important, right? It took me a long time to figure out what people were saying brethren. I grew up Presbyterian. I was like, what's this brethren thing people keep talking about? And I would get these pamphlets. I couldn't find anything. It's not a denomination in the standard way. Um, but brethren ecclesiology is, it comes out of Acts, right? And so for instance, I did a Bible study with T. Michael Flowers. We spent the whole year in Acts just the book of Acts. And, and someone reminded me, they're like, actually, he was discipling you because he didn't know you were a real Christian or not. I'm like, oh, okay. Um, <laughs> that makes sense, right? He's like, you know, um, and I talk about how he took issue with my IRB form as well. Um, but he, you, you get the sense that they're trying to recreate the house churches in Acts, right? These very small, you know, um, primitive Christian communities um, where 
Um, there's that intimacy, there's a smallness of gathering, that that is like the authentic ideal of community life. And, and it's, it's to the point so that brethren are anti-sectarian and anti-denominational, right? They, there's a belief that institutional elaboration yields to processes, and this comes out of like, you know, disestablishmentarianism and all of that, that sort of stew that's cooking uh, in, in the, the British Isles in the 19th century, but that, that the farther you move away from that is apostasy, right? Mm -hmm. So there's, it's about trying to maintain this authenticated model of, of intimacy, of familial communion. Um, it's, it's, I mean, the term brethren comes from like, that's the only kind of biblical term Christians didn't call them, I mean, people, Christians were called Christians at Antioch, but that's not how they refer to themselves, <laughs> right? Um, and so this is also where we see literalism as playing a role, that that becomes, this is the church that Christ intended. Um, and the churches we see today are not the churches that Christ intended. So yes, I think scale is huge um, in that regard. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, and the, the whole story around Brethren and Flowers, um, you know, the Flowers chapter was so informative for me because in my work in Black evangelicalism, it centered in New York, Chicago, and Detroit, actually, because mm -hmm. of the nottages. Somebody's got to do some work on nottage, brothers. I agree. That is I'm, an I'm, amazing I'm story. It. I absolutely yeah. I'm trying to find sources. It's really hard. That's also the other yeah. thing, right? Yeah. The, and, and brethren aren't always great record keepers, according to Donald Akinson. So. <laughs> Well, they do have a lot of sermons, I understand. Mm -hmm. Like there's a lot of sermons that they've said, but you're right, the, the other records have not have a little bit sparse. Mm -hmm. But the Nottages, their influence is so broad. Mm -hmm. I mean, through through Detroit, a lot of the brethren that gathered in Detroit, um, Bill Pinnell comes out mm -hmm. of the that network, Flowers in, in, introduced there. Um, so, the, um, but exactly what you're saying, especially around uh, Plymouth Brethren, as well as uh, th this group was called the Black Brethren. I think that was kind of their nickname for this cohort. Mm -hmm. um, what what they ended up shaping and forming uh, was highly influential on the NBEA and the, the ethos of that. Mm -hmm. So a lot of that around maybe smaller churches, but also the ethos of simplicity, ethos of kind of back to the basics of the Bible type of language. Um, that lent itself a little bit more to the evangelical ethos than maybe to the kind of the Protestant liberal uh, mainline uh, mm -hmm. church ethos. So that's where the Nottages and the uh, Brethren were so formative in, mm -hmm. in their followers and in, in who they discipled, you see some of that impact. Which is so interesting because Brethrenism has actually been really in central in the elaboration of sort of the broader evangelical story, but we tend to associate it with eschatology, right? Um, that it's about the end times narrative and, and John Nelson Darby and all of that. Whereas there's this other kind of element um, at the level of, it's kind of an institutional critique um, and a focus on sort of biblical teaching. I mean, you know, they're critical of charismatic pastoral leadership, um, but that it's, it's not just about the charisma and performance. It's about the idea if you have a standard pastor, then everyone's not learning the Bible. So all the men should be responsible for preaching. Right. And so if everyone's responsible, their investment in learning will be different. So it's also kind of it's it's radically egalitarian in, in an interesting way, while super hierarchical and paternalistic and patriarchal at the same time. It's a male egalitarianism. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I would love I mean, I, I wanted to find out more about um, classes that that uh, flowers took in Scotland and 
just kind of seeing how these ideas are, are how these ideas are traveling, right? Um, what conversations are being had? Yeah. Do I have time for another question? I know we're going to mm -hmm. open up in a, in a minute. Um, so, um, okay, let me see which question I'm going to ask. I wanted to talk to you about um, two things. So, in in terms of how um, men's and women's um, spheres are operating, right? Um, I was unclear about the, because of the way that you tell us about um, women's prayer partnerships and those kinds of things, I was curious about, are do men, are men doing that same type of prayer work in that same kind of way? And then, um, and then the other side of that in how I'm thinking about this is, about women's uh, biblical exegesis. So I was really struck by the story in the end where you're talking to the Stuarts and and then uh, and then uh, Sister Stuart gets on the phone and she gives you a scripture, right? I say, and I say, oh, this is really interesting because she's the one who has the scripture. And then also you have um, Sister Brighton. I love her quote. There are women who can speak just as well as those brothers and some even better. They've been studying the word. They know the word. They can deliver the word. So I'm wondering like, through prayer meetings, the spaces between home and church, every, everyday activities that you map for us, what's the place of the Bible in, the, in there? And how do women use scripture in okay. everyday? And, and do you find gender distinctions in how and when they use scripture or in their scriptural interpretations? So in other words, like the, 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 the things that we can, that you identify as being how men operate their sociality, uh, sociality and how, how women um, form theirs. Is there any kind of cross-pollinization or, or people doing some of the same things in their separate spheres, but with to different extent or with different outcomes? Yes, that's a fantastic question. Um, one of the things I try to mention in the introduction, I don't know if it comes across as well as that, some of those zones of, I think, experiential spirituality on the part of men, like the, the homosociality, I was not able to access mm -hmm. as a woman. Mm -hmm. um, and there are a number of things that shaped my status in the research community. Um, mm -hmm. I became more fully integrated when I became engaged to be married, which happened during my field work. I had got way more access to way more spaces, but as like a single young woman, I mean, there are times in which I would do an interview and I would, I would sometimes have to wait until the wife came home. Right. Um, occasionally this wasn't, ha it didn't happen all the time, but it was, you know, I sat between my church parents one day and I was told it was not appropriate to sit between a husband and wife. Uh, so, um, the gendered spheres. Yes. Um, you know, I never heard the term prayer partner used on the part of men. Although I know that men were certainly engaged. I talk about spiritual parenting um, and for me, not so much about spiritual fatherhood. I think I was trying to just do more representational parody by focusing on women in chapter five, which is my favorite chapter. Um, but definitely spiritual uh, parenthood, discipling, men were involved in that. And discipling was not just about bringing people into matters of faith, that, that kinship is a matter of discipling as men became husbands and fathers, older men discipled them around that as well. Um, so there's definitely evidence of that and people could talk about it. Um, uh, and, and there would be, you would see, um, similarly you would see more biblical exegesis 
women who are spiritual mothers to their spiritual children. Um, so for instance, a, a woman joined, she was a new Christian. She was, she was mentored or mothered by an older woman who had been a Christian for a long time and they would do Bible studies together. Um, I was actually really surprised. At, at one point, my Bible study with Pastor Flowers, another woman entered in. I don't know if that came up as, as an issue, but you know, she kind of, so was the three of us doing Bible study. Um, uh, and definitely in women's gatherings, like there was like women's retreats, you know, listen, <laughs> any, any brethren, someone says, well, you don't want to mess with the brethren in the Bible, period, right? Any brethren, they will, be, you know, I used to be captain of my, I was, I, I went to an evangelical primary school. I was captain of the Bible quiz team. I had never been so grateful that I had studied the word because they will, they have no problems correcting you. Um, and so that, 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 that knowledge of the Bible, the memorization, the utility, the facility, um, there was one mixed sex, um, well, there are two mixed sex Bible studies, but one on Thursday was more relaxed in terms of some of the gender roles, right? And so the conversation was more free flowing and women would challenge men. And, but the Tuesday night Bible study, that didn't seem to be the, each Bible study kind of had its culture too. And it didn't seem the, the right culture for the Bible study. Um, so definitely there is no, I never saw anything that indicated that men were better. <laughs> it was just by gendered prescription, right? That men were the only ones who were allowed to teach mixed sex um, groups. And this was, I remember kind of coming into a church as someone who grew, grew up as Presbyterian, my aunt's a minister. I was like, I have never seen anything like this in my life, you know? So when I talk about this Afro-Protestant mainland, I'm, I'm talking about me, right? Like, and, and what it meant even though I went to a white evangelical school to go into a black, I mean, like part of it was like, I did not know there were black Christians like this. You know, it was very art, like, you know, women had head coverings and like, we really can't, you know, I had to have a man go on stage with me to announce my research project. And I was told that was unprecedented. You know, I'm like, really? You know, even as there's all this other laughter and play and, you know, a woman that's making this point, like, I don't know why people use the Bible for families. There's a lot of dysfunctional families in the Bible, which is such a really, you know, poignant observation, right? The more you study, the more you're like, this isn't, sometimes this is a kind of a mess, right? So um, that is part of the reason why the gender spheres, I think, are so distinct. Some of the more intimate, confiding relationships I didn't always have an ear to, I could kind of deduce by context, but prayer partnership, I never heard men use that language at all. I only heard women talk about prayer partnership. Are we, do we have to open it up? I don't I think we have can. to, should we? Unless, <laughs> Professor Ra. I'm here, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm at your disposal if you want okay. to Q and A, but if you three want to continue the conversation, that's fine. We have one Q, uh, one question in the queue, and okay. I have one myself. Um, I don't know if Professor Raw had one more question. I'd well, love to hear the questions from the group. And okay. yeah, the feedback right. okay. would be fantastic. Oh, okay. I have more questions, but I don't want to be a hog. No, we'll uh, Judith, <laughs> wonderful. <laughs> I'm very happy that you have more and um, we're happy to circle back to those. So let's take one question from the audience. This is from someone well-known here, Marla Frederick. Hi, Marla. <laughs> wow, wonderful. So here's what Marla writes. She says, what a wonderful conversation. Thank you all. It's so good to see each of you. My question's for Todney. 
Do brethren have a commitment to the quote-unquote black family or to the quote-unquote family? Likewise, is there a commitment to the black church or just to the church? In other words, as they decenter race, do they see a crisis facing the black family or black institutions? How do they understand and confront racial inequity while not drawing attention to race? Mm-hmm. That's a fantastic question. Um, so one of the things that was really interesting uh, about doing field work is um, the lack of the use of the word black, actually. Hmm. Um, you know, so, um, you know, like it wasn't referred to a black church. We didn't talk about slavery, you know, like that wasn't a, you know, that wasn't a byline of a theological historical conversation. Um, you know, I wouldn't, I, I feel like people use church and they use family in an unqualified term. And then in conversations with people one-on-one, they might bring up the black thing, right? So, and, and in particular, a lot of times it tended to be not all, but African-Americans who did, right? You know, so for instance, I think in chapter six, there's someone that talks about, actually, actually Michael Flowers does too, that there's a crisis of leadership in, in, in our communities with men. And this is partly why male leadership is so important in the churches like men. There's plenty of women who can actually be leaders. Like this is T. Michael Flowers who says this, right? Because they know how to take care of the family and they know how to start institutions, but it's actually a crisis in, in, in black male leadership that, that um, we seek to remedy. Um, so, you know, really moving into like a 19, 1970s, 1980s moment, that becomes a dominant line. I don't think there's a commitment to black church, right? Because that, that just wasn't a form of language. Um, there's certainly an understanding that racialization takes place, but it wasn't discussed in the pulpit, right? Like people would talk about it on the ground. And I think the common response to racialization was just material aid and reciprocity. It was, it's people moving into Atlanta. And you know, one uh, person said that when he came, a church member gave him a car so that he could look for work and find a job. Um, it is, you know, there was a woman who had some health problems who lost her job. It's love offerings. It's times in which I saw people were in hard times and like after church, people would bring groceries to the car, you know, very discreetly. Um, or people would talk about some of their financial problems and testimonies to how God would, and through the community, God through the community would provide for their needs. School, children's school fees, uniforms, um, things of that nature. So I, I, it's interesting because race doesn't become a point of discussion in the pulpit or church. People would bring it up at the level, talk about scale, the level of the interview, um, but you wouldn't hear it. Um, and, and, and in a lot of ways, I think part of it is people having different relationships to black identity as, as, as migrants, as um, you know, one of the things that's important um, is that the African-Americans that I interviewed, a lot of them were serial migrants, which means they've lived in at least two places since their place of birth. Um, so race is sort of decentralized, but also acknowledged, right? People had no problems talking about race discrimination in, in, in their professions and in interviews. It just didn't come up in church as a kind of shared language. Um, so there's sort of two things, either blackness becomes decentered or blackness is so taken for granted, it doesn't need to be named. Does that make sense? And I can never really figure out, depending on context, which, which kind of frame, which kind of definition of blackness was operative. Um, but yeah, what, people wouldn't use black family crisis. They just say the family in church. And then at the level of interviews, they'd be like, you know, well, black men, there's this issue or um, in smaller spaces that would come up.
if that makes sense. It does. Um, Tanya, I wonder if you'd permit a question from me and then we can go back to, um, to Judith or uh, anyone else that poses one in the function. Um, I was intrigued by something you said uh, in your comments. I think it was your beginning comments about how you studied kinship before religion. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that transition from studying kinship from, I assume you meant there from a sort of strictly anthropological training and then the, the transition to religious studies and what made you feel that that was a necessary transition to do the work you wanted to do? Yeah, this would be a, a, a proud favorite for our graduate students. So I um, initially started graduate school. I knew that I, I was very curious about um, the Caribbean diaspora in Atlanta, Georgia, um, you know, Missouri Neil Hurston fan. And so I was always struck by Hurston's ability to study African-American and Afro-Caribbean culture. Um, I knew that uh, starting in the 1980s, Caribbean migration to Atlanta started to really become a thing, right? So Atlanta uh, started to become a, a site for receiving um, Afro-Caribbean migration, predominantly from New York at first, and then eventually internationally. And so um, I kind of fell in love with kinship and I was interested in uh, transnational family networks, right, originally. So I go to do field work in 2006 and it's an abysmal failure, right? And it's a failure because Atlanta is so decentralized, right? That finding just a place to post. I mean, I was, I was part of a Caribbean soccer league. There was like a carnival league, but those, the, the meetings were only seasonal. It wasn't a thing that would carry me through the whole entire year. Like I, I, I panicked. And so um, my grad advisor asked, well, what about churches? And I was like, what? She said, well, what about churches, right? Like, where, are there any Caribbean churches? I'm like, oh yeah, I'd heard about several. Um, and so uh, we kind of like, and I had like a sort of personal interest in theology, you know, um, I, as a younger woman, I contemplated a call to ministry, but I never, I would have never told my grad advisor that, right? Like me and actually had a colleague at UVA who, went to Wheaton and like we would talk about our Christian identity and the stacks in the library and like how we knew it was like not cool, you know, to like can't. And I was like, you get the worst of it because you went to Wheaton. I'm like an undercover, you know, I remember the time I told her I went to the evangelical school and my grad advisor looked at me like, like I'd been lying to her, right? So, um, you know, I kind of did some research on some of the organizations, the, the Caribbean um, majority, um, and I decided on a Pentecostal organization and then it just wasn't a fit. I walked into this evangelical church, didn't even know it was evangelical. And like the use of kinship language was so thick from the time I walked into the door. My church dad was one of the first people I spoke to after service. And I said, well, nice to meet you, Mr. So-and-so. He said, no, it's brother, right? If we're believers, we're brothers and sisters in Christ. So it's brother so-and-so. And your name is Sister, Sister Todney, right? And so I was like, this is it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, not to be imperial colonial, but I was like, I, you know, so it, it was sort of um, the kind of serendipity that happens with research interest and, and having interest versus context. And I had literally done all my three years of coursework. I'd never taken a religious studies class. I don't even want to tell you how stressed out um, I, I was and have been actually, I think, in, in reading my way into religious studies and the irony being, you know, I'm a religious studies <laughs> scholar now. So that's that's part of the pathway. I had a, a set of interests and I didn't know how to 
how to how to study them spatially. Thank you so much. That was really, really wonderful. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. Um, uh, Judith, uh, we can go back to you uh, if, if you have a question ready. I do. Um, in, the, in the book, you talk about the, um, I like the way that you put this, that brothers ritual work contributes to the institutionalization of the community and sisters work contributes to the incorporation of, of, of members as an everyday familial community that shares common religious and cultural ground. So my question is, do you see women's silences as ritual labor that contributes to mm. the institutionalization mm. and or are there silences given a voice in their gender segregated settings and thereby opening up an interpretive space in the incorporation of members. In other words, what's the relationship between institutionalization and incorporation? And um, do is institutionalization possible without incorporation? And do these the practices of incorporation reshape the practices of institutionalization? In other words, I'm asking about call and response. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm asking about. Mm -hmm. And and one of the reasons why I'm asking this question in this way in particular was just because of the ways that that this religious community is very different from the community that I worked with. And there are so many similarities. There are so many similarities. So I was just wondering about. And so in, in my experience, there's this call and response that actually has an impact on institutionalization. I'm just wondering what that, is there a call and response in this community and what does that look like? What kind of impact would it have? It's mm -hmm. a fantastic um, set of questions. Um, the idea of women's ritual silence is institutional labor. I mean, I would say it's, it's a commitment to the institution and women will mm -hmm. talk about, you know, the, the, especially those who weren't raised brethren or some people call it born brethren, right. um, you know, the born again brethren, right? Um, particularly, I think African-American women, um, you know, who come into the, the movement and have to acquire these certain gender sensibilities. There's some discussion about the challenges of that. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes done with a bit of levity, like, you know, whatever, it's just church and we, you know, uh, do our own thing on the side <laughs> or, you know, some African-Americans being like, what kind of cult are you, you know, like we're not, speaking of legibility for some African-American members, their evangelical identity made them illegible to their other African-American family members. Um, you know, and the women's definite, women's voice, uh, voices are definitely loud in their own settings. There's a joy and fun and there's critique. There are also some um, context of subvention. So there would be special services where people are allowed to give testimonies. And that's when women would jump in, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. Because there is, it's mixed sex gatherings. And so women would, sometimes women would use those spaces to critique church practices. And that happened. Um, certainly there's some personalities that were more likely to do that than others. Um, but definitely women are very, um, uh, in some ways, they what I think they perform is a kind of, um, adherence to these gender norms um, on the kind of on the, the top, <laughs> but underneath there's so many other perspectives, right? Um, 
you know, uh, there are sometimes women who enact different kinds of hierarchy. So one woman was like, you don't call me sister, you call me aunt. You know, I approached the throne of grace before you were even born. So there's some women who claim their authority. You know, we don't have church mothers, but like some women claim aunthood kind of as a title and mantle of authority and, and longevity in the Christian lifestyle. Um, you know, certainly um, one of my favorite settings is in chapter five, but there's like a women's prayer um, gathering. And I'm thinking it's like, it's like an hour or two or something. It starts at seven o'clock. It's 3 a.m. We're still eating and laugh. I'm like, oh my God, you know, and like on the verge of almost irreverent jokes, like there's one sister who's Jamaican, very witty and clever. I'm like, was that a sex joke? You know, I was like, what's going on at 3 You know, something, and I was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to be so exhausted by the time I get home. But it was actually so much fun and like little jokes and somebody was teasing someone who's good. I was also getting married. So I got teased a lot too, you know, like these little, um, so yeah, I think that the call and response is really in my mind, it is the, the ritual silence is performative women will influence in different ways. They will influence in, in, in homosocial settings. Sometimes they will influence on their husbands. If their husband has a particular role, definitely those women are like the elders in the community. Those women are, um, often sought out. Um, I think that they sort of really um, you know, they're, they're also better with newer members. You see women kind of just descending upon, <laughs> descending upon new members to take them in. I think women are how church is preserved. The relationship between the institution and corporation, women kind of tighten the ties that bind, right? Like you might join a church off of doctrinal convictions. A lot of people talk about that as the reason that they're drawn to the church. Not all, a couple of you were like, you know, it's a nice Caribbean community. I want my child to be raised with like, you know, nice Caribbeans. But a lot of people talk about how the biblical Christianity just really spoke to them. But it's the it's the incorporation that creates the ties that bind because doctrinal um, convictions is not necessarily one of the most longest lasting bases, I think, for membership. Um, I think about a couple who left the church. And one of the things that I'm surprised I didn't write about it, but one of the things that struck me was they wrote this really long letter to the church explaining why they were leaving, right? And, you know, I'm coming from a Presbyterian background. I'm like, why didn't they just leave, <laughs> right? It's Atlanta. It's a city, right? There's like a billion churches on this road alone. There's like four churches on the, the street that this church was located on. Like, it was a very long, and it was like, you know, well, we've decided to attend a church in our community, we're trying to win some young souls for Christ. This is where we're, we do soccer. Uh, we're like a soccer coach and soccer mom. And it was this long, detailed, you know, and over time, I was like, it's the ties that bind. Like, this is not an easy community to leave behind. You know, one Sunday I got sick and I think I'd just been attending for like four weeks, multiple phone calls to my house. Are you okay? <laughs> is everything all right? Um, and so incorporation is, is really that staying power. It's that glue, I think. And, and that's how those two relate. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Thank you. Uh-huh. Well, I just want to jump in and say so, uh, the, the Q&A has just exploded uh, oh. with some fantastic questions from some more familiar uh, names. So if you don't mind, I want to at least get one out, maybe two if we have time and you have energy. This one is from Denzen Staples. 
Um, Denzin says, thank you so much for this conversation and for your scholarship, Professor Thomas. I have a question that all the panelists might have insight into. The introduction to kincraft situates the arc from kinlessness to kin possibilities in the context of the African diaspora, pointing out that symbolic constructions of kinship aren't uniquely or singularly the domain of Black religious subjects. Mm -hmm. What's the relationship between these broader diasporic kinship claims and the specifically spiritual kinship claims of Black evangelicals? If the effects of the claims are similar, that is forging symbolic kinship, establishing re relationality and sociality, making material resources available on the basis of that sociality and so on. What other ways beyond the effects alone might we use to think about their relationship? Now, I'm sorry, that was a long question. The panelists can all see it. Um, so, uh, but I'm gonna, if, I'm gonna actually cut that and put that in the chat for everyone else to digest as you are, are um, uh, each taking it up. Okay, I, I can't see it. You can't. Um, but I, I will try to address yep. it. Yep, here you um, go. I mean, I think uh, the, the, there's, a, there's like a broad set of really interesting um, kin processes or kin technologies. You know, there's the, you know, there's the middle passage, which puts the ship in kinship, right? Um, shipmates, the shipmate relationship, which is kind of how I fell in love with kinship in the first place, right? And, and I think that more needs to be written about the ontological and cosmological dimensions of shipmate relationships and kinship. That kinship wasn't just a survival arc, but it's, it's, it's these other ontological things. Um, I think about SUSUs, right? Which are collective credit organizations, right? Um, the effects can be similar, right? The affects can be similar, but I think thinking about the idea systems that motivate them, right? Those, are, those aren't necessarily the same, right? Mm -hmm. So even if they conduct different work or conduct similar kinds of work in terms of material outcomes, I think thinking about the, the ideological claims, the project that people see themselves participating in, the, the scale and scope of those projects are really, really important um, for um, Black evangelicals. Um, you know, the, the different kinds of kin world that they inhabit where there's so many of them were so relationally thick right so you have you know nuclear families you had extended you know sort of biogenetic families right there's one uh family that had four generations in the same church right um you have um you know, brothers and sisters who were sort of mentoring um one another spiritual parents and people would have one man was like I have four mommies right <laughs> you have um, people who, like Pastor Flowers, who who really rejected, he did not want to do an interview with me, and um, because my IRB said West Indian Church, and he said there's no such thing as the West Indian Church. There's only the universal church, the universal body of believers, right? I'll do a Bible study with you, you know, um, but I can't do an interview with you because I don't support the language that you're using. There are people who, really, with the breaking of bread, there would be um, people would say, you know, we're breaking bread and there are other Christians breaking bread and we are all, we are all a part of the body of believers, all the believers that have ever lived, the believers that will come. There would be these moments where 
people understood themselves as partaking of this this universal body of believers and it was it wasn't for me, I, I struggled with this, I think, coming from a black church context. Um, and, and it was really after field work where I started trying to figure out the sincerity in that, right? That it was actually some of these universal claims to kinship that I struggled with the most that people would insist on um, and, 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 and getting it right. You know, people would be like, we're part of the royal family of God. It's a cosmic family, right? So it's about those simultaneities, those different scales. It's about uh, translocal connections, like some people came through this church called Good Tidings in Brooklyn through Atlanta, and people maintained their connections at Good Tidings, their connections to the Caribbean, and their uh, relationship to DBC. It's the simultaneity. So I, I think it's important to really be um, aware of the kind of idea projects, the, the, what people see themselves as being a part of, and not just the affect and effects, material effects, but the project aspect. And it's really actually Myra Rivera, um, who, you know, is a theologian um, in, in our community that got me to think about really the significance of these transcendent ideas. She has this idea of relational transcendence. And I still remember reading it in grad school and being like, holy crap, this is what, this is, this like the, the interhuman, the cosmic, that, that these things are actually theology, that these things are transcendent, that transcendence isn't just an individual subjectivity, that, you know, someone's like, isn't it great that we get to be in heaven together? Because being in heaven by yourself would be so boring, right? And like, we're forever family, you know? There's sometimes I'd be like, okay, that's not a little Mormon friends, um, but like, we're, we're, t- we're forever family. Like my blood family, you know, if they're not believers, I'm not gonna be with them, right? They're, they're not gonna be in heaven with me, but we get to be family forever. So that, that's what I think is important getting. It's not throwing out kinship and specificity. It's just not assuming biology is the grounding, I think. Do we have time for one more question? Do you have time? For, do you have energy for one I more? I do, I oh, do. That's really <laughs> can, I, can I make a quick response to- um, Absolutely, So one thing that I was thinking about was, um, the, uh, the effects, like um, the question about what are the relationships between the, these broader diasporic claims and the spe- specificity of spiritual kinship. And if the effects of the claims are the same, then how do we think about um, these relationships? I think one thing that we, that we should look at is, um, is conceptual approaches to doing things. Mm-hmm. So in terms of thinking about like um, the, the history of, of black people and thinking about kinship and family structures, if we look up, there are different contexts. And so, so people are doing it in, in different contexts, but we can find like threads of conceptual approaches. So as I'm reading this text, I'm thinking about maroon communities. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking about like all these different moments when black people have to say, okay, we have to actually now, we are gonna make, we're gonna make a network, we're going to make kin, and this is how we're going to do it. So that really, to me, is more um, thinking about like the threads of the conceptual approaches to, as, as, as Todd is saying really clearly, of this idea of the heteronormative family structure is not workable. And so, and so then how do Black people then think about or practice another type of, of family making or kin making? And the other thing that it makes me think about is it, there's a number of, of historians, and also we can think about this in terms of, of, of Black studies in general, uh, about the sacredness of Black history, right? Mm-hmm. So, so even if we go back to kind of the canonical 
Du Bois, Souls of Black Folks, in right there at the turn of the century, he's laying down the gauntlet about the sacredness of Black history and Black people. And so I think there are, there are ways that, that those things actually kind of intersect. And I think one of the foundational conceptual approaches is an insistence that Black people have an insistence on creating networks, on being social, on being social beings, and that then that the the conceptual the conceptual thread is that they're always having to work extra hard in different ways to make those things happen, and their framework is different, especially g- given what uh, Soon Chan was saying earlier about white evangelical hypocrisy that the black framework is a different framework. So I think that's the way that I kind of think about your question. And the connection for that for me is what I was trying to raise earlier about the parallels within the other immigrant communities as well. Mm-hmm. And so even thinking about the spiritual kinship uh, and, and Cohn talks about this in terms of the blues in African-American culture and Han in Korean culture, and it comes out of a common experience of oppression, common experience mm-hmm. of, of challenging, you know, the, uh, 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 being conquered repeatedly, historically. So the spirituality that emerges is, is also a form of kinship. So to me, kind of looking forward, is there a way to think about this in terms of an ecclesial impact of what does a genuinely restored uh, cross-multicultural community look like? And it's not... The, the false family idea that you're kind of critiquing to say, oh, we're just all friends here. You know, I love you, man. That kind of like, you know, beer commercial type of experience. <laughs> it really it really is the depth of the spiritual uh, kinship. And that to me is a much better marker for what a, a United Christian community looks like. And so even uh, Corey Edwards' work on the elusiveness mm-hmm. of multicultural communities uh, at uh, Ohio State, uh, she's alluding to you can't do this well because you don't really have, I think what you're describing, which is the deeper sense of spiritual kinship. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of stuff, I think, that's talked about how even some of the effective valences of racial reconciliation, the language of brotherhood, but we leave structures alone, right? Um, or, you know, sort of the ethical thing, we could be using the same term, but what I, what I associate with brotherhood, what it means to be a brother or what it means to be a sister, not necessarily the same thing, right? The way we do kinship, even when we're using the same language as English speakers, you know, black family, I mean, not all black family ties by, but sometimes, woo, they, they will woo, they will tie you up, tie you down, tie you all around, right? And so I think it's also some of these ethical sensibilities as well. What does it mean to be a brother? Um, and one of the things I'd like to point out um, that I came to this book later in the revision process, there's a way in which after beloved community, interracial kinship sounds pretty germane, um, pretty du jour, but there's this book called Hurting Words. And talks about the real resistance to interracial kinship claims in the 1950s, right? And part of this resistance on the part of whites was this idea like black people don't do family right. Not like a literally not wanting black people to use that language because there's a lack of trust. I think it's also about uh, hegemonic privilege and, and, and influence, but, but not wanting black people to use kinship as a language for interracial gathering because there was a mistrust of 
of, of, of black families, right? Like, what do they know about, kin, you know? So these, these terms, even though kinship sounds so utopian and fuzzy, it's so fraught and, and, and heavy laden and kind of seeing that, right? Um, you know, that the interracial kinship brought up ideas of miscegenation and intermarriage and people were uncomfortable with that, right? That this thing that to me, by the time I'm born seems pretty simple and unique, helped me understand that, that flowers, you know, use of kinship uh, and it's interracial, you know, was really, really very political. And that's not something we tend to think of when we think about black evangelicals, right? They're interjecting these idea worlds that are challenging to, to their times, right? But I think black evangelicalism has, even if it's, as it doesn't take up the kind of civic, you know, position that's commonly associated with black churches, but that was actually even very rare for black churches in the civil rights movement, right? Um, so yeah, I, the idea of what could be the broader ecclesial story of these kinships, of spirituality as kinship, this kinship as a kind of spirituality is, is you know, there's a, a term in my church that's used the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of God. Um, and I've, I've found that to be very provocative and something to think through. That's great. Thank you, Tavni. And I think that's probably a wonderful place for us to end. Uh, I want those who uh, have submitted questions to know that we always pass on the questions and comments to the author and the respondents. There's no obligation, of course, for you all to respond to those, uh, but you just at the very least to know what sorts of things you're work and conversation have provoked. It's always helpful. Um, so let me once again, thank you, Tavni, for this. Thank you for writing this book. Thank you for hosting this event with such grace. And thank you, um, Judith and Sung Chan, for your uh, wonderful framing comments. And thank you all for participating. Um, I'll speak for the center now and just say, uh, we're going to take a few months break from Zoom. <laughs> I think we all probably feel like we need it. Uh, but this is a wonderful event to, to wrap up the, the year with. So once again, thank you all. And I will see you in September. Take care. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Tony. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.